Well, hello there. Um, welcome to episode 50 of Chit Chats with GitCats. Um, it's been a little while. I had to take some time off due to uh, some software issues. Hopefully, we've got all those sorted out. Um, and in that meantime, I've rounded up some sponsors. So I'd really like to give a shout out to Summer Cable, Chicken Picks, and ET Guitars for getting behind us. I'm going to have some competitions coming out for you guys where I'm giving away heaps of goodies from those guys. But uh, in the meantime, ding dong, who's at my door? It's none other than Mr. Frank Gambali. Hey, Frank. Mate, thank you for joining me all the way from uh, Spain. How is that over there? Yes. I got a lot of music I can hardly hear. Ah, you've got your computer playing in the background. No, that's you, your music. Well, hello there. Oh, now I reckon that's you've got, you've got YouTube open in the background. Whoa, hang on. Oh, you're right. I just saw what the problem is. Yep. I've seen this happen before. People, people love a train wreck, mate. So don't worry about it. That's exactly what we got. Oh, dear, dear. That's okay, mate. Can we start again? That's it. Now I can say, (laughs) Mr. Frank Gambali. I had it on Safari using uh, the Google Chrome, and they were both going at the same time. So you only need one of us at a time, I'm pretty sure. Now we're good. So, mate, as we were talking, you're, uh, you're living in Spain now. You moved over there recently. Yes. Uh, I moved in September to Barcelona, and, uh, you know, it's a love affair that's been happening for a lot of years, you know. You know, I started touring in Europe uh, in around 1986 and just love Europe. I just love the history and the art, and I'm a big fan of of Gaudi and Tony Gaudi, the architect. who's all over the place here in Barcelona. You know, and Dali and Picasso, all those guys really inspired me. I could just look at a, a structure and, and get all googly or look at, you know, I can walk down the street and go to the Picasso Museum and just stare at a Picasso. Uh, or a Dali Museum down the other end of the street. You know, it's just, I love it. Um, my wife loves it. My daughter loves it. We're all in love with Spain. And it's such a beautiful uh the people are so friendly and nice and respectful and helpful and yeah yeah I'm I'm really digging it. It's a nice change. I was in uh, L.A. for forty years and that was completely awesome too. But I just felt like you know what a life well lived. I I grew up in Australia for twenty two years there, moved to the states for a heck of a long time, and now I'm over here in Europe. So I'm getting the best of all worlds. And what part of Australia? What part of Australia did you grow up? I grew up Canberra. Canberra. Okay. Yeah. I would say uh, you got to be from somewhere. <laughs> so, Frank? Canberra, you know, it's, not, it's one of those towns that uh, gets a lot of bad, uh, bad press from the rest of Australia, and I never understood why. It's a very beautiful town, and it was a great place to grow up. I, I, I loved my time in Australia and in Canberra especially. So Nice. Go on. Over. So, 
over <laughs> we did say that but there is a bit of a delay folks so yeah, it's, if it's you hear delayed. us saying yeah. over there is a bit of slight delay just to stop us talking over each other but frank i'm going to ask you how did the love affair with the guitar start for you as a kid in canberra no i actually over. hate the guitar <laughs> no i love the guitar you know i'm a, a guitar nut I've, I've been playing it since i was six years old i'm 62 now and you know i i just love the instrument i love the sound of a plucked string and all the incredible sounds you can get out of a guitar whether it's through effects or just the guitar itself uh, whether it's acoustic electric doesn't really matter anything with strings on i always say and, uh, you know, I was lucky I had two older brothers and they were way into it as a youngster. So I really got stuck into it at a young age. And and it stayed with me since then, you know. Sometimes I'll listen to a group um, and if they don't have a guitar player in it, I go, what's wrong with these guys? Why don't they have a guitar player, you know? I said that actually when I first went to see uh, Chick Corea's electric band. In the beginning, uh, you know, I played with that Eventually, I played with that group for 36 years, you know. Wow. And with uh, with Dick, and when I went to see the group the first time, it was uh, in L.A. Uh, there's a part of L.A. called Long Beach, which is basically the port area, the harbor area. And there's a, a festival there occasionally called the Long Beach Jazz Festival. And I remember going to see Chick because I was already a big fan. And... Uh, and the trio played, and they were amazing. It was incredible. But I thought, great band. They need a guitar player. And you know, who'd have thought that a year later I'd be in the band? So careful what you wish for, folks. Wow, wow. So oh. you said you, you had two older brothers. Did they play guitar as well? They did originally, yes. My brother Nunzio is probably more famous than me in Australia. He had, after I left, he established uh, the biggest... Um, and the first mail-order music store in Australia based out of Canberra called Pro Audio. Mm -hmm. And everybody knows Pro Audio. Um, he sold the business maybe 20-something years ago, but he went to uh, America and did uh, a whole lot of market research. You know, was the first to do mail-order, which was brilliant. So if, if nobody came through the shop, uh, you know, Canberra's only a small town, you know, he was still doing mega business, shipping out stuff all over the country. So it was great. It worked out really well. And so, yeah, my brother Nunes was the bass player in all the groups that I was in. Um, and my middle brother, Severia, played pretty decent guitar too for quite a while, but he got more interested in girls and other things. And, and you know, I was the one that kept it going, mostly because I was the youngest and I, I didn't have all the other encumbrances that, uh, you know, older guys have you know so at the time so it was good and did they pass on a, a bit of um the what they knew on the guitar to you is that how you you first started from lessons from them or did you have a teacher in the early days it wasn't really that it was more the fact that uh they they influenced what i was listening to and you know they were way into a lot of interesting stuff <clears throat> you know everything from the beatles to you know, uh, I remember John Mayle, uh, the blues, a lot of blues stuff in the six, late 60s, Cream and, you know, Hendrix and all that stuff. They were laying it on me as a kid, you know, and I was 
you know, as a six or seven year old, I wouldn't normally be listening to that kind of stuff. If it wasn't for them, that were already in their early, well, almost early teens, you know. Uh, so that was pretty cool. You know, they, they turned me on to stuff that I would never have heard. And so I had to learn by ear. We were all, you know, it was LPs, uh, vinyls, and we would, you know, we'd all be there picking up a note or two at a time and trying to find it on the guitar. It was all by ear, you know, yeah. back then. So yeah. it was, uh, it was cool. It was a great way to learn guitar. I learned mostly by ear for the first seven or eight years. And, um, and after that, I really thought, I, I want to know, I want to understand what I'm doing. You know? So I learned how to read and, uh, and, you know, just started listening to other kinds of things and, and learned my harmony in theory. You know, I think it's essential. Otherwise, you keep hitting this brick wall, uh, musically speaking, you know. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to just play the same thing over and over and over and over and over for the rest of my life. I wanted to keep growing as a musician. So, yep. anyway, yeah. Something. You know, that, that rings true with me. I, uh, I get very bored of my own playing. Um, and you know what? I think I need to take advantage of your frankgambaliguitarschool.com promotion you've got at the moment. Oh. Speaking of which, of teaching, 40% uh, off you're offering students, yeah? 40% off by using yeah. the code for australia Yeah, the number four, Australia, all in capital letters. Yeah, look, I, you know, I love Aussies and I love musicians. And Oh, actually, there's probably people listening everywhere, but... Uh, I like to give back wherever I can. And, I, you know, if I can be an influence in a positive way, like a lot of people have been on me, uh, I like to give back. And I've got some pretty cool courses uh, at my online school. Well, Frank, I did mention to you um, as we were chatting before we went live that a very major thing that I learned along the way that I use all the time when I'm playing was taught to me by you at a, at a clinic. I'm, I'm struggling to think if it was 88, 89, 90. It was an Ibanez clinic. Um, I was only a young fella, like 14, 15, 16. But you were explaining about the modes. And mm -hmm. up until that point, everybody had just spat mathematics at me. Oh, one, flat, two, three. You know, well, this just made no sense to me. Right. But you brought right. up a very easy thing to remember. And that was that if you saw two major chords a tone apart, that is your four and five of the parent key. Mm -hmm. And whatever chord, everything seems to be hanging around, that dictates what mode you're actually playing in. And that just really sunk in like you wouldn't believe. And I'm hoping that you have other bits of gold like that at your frankgambaliguitarschool.com that you can pass on to folks. Yeah, do I ever. Do I ever. Uh, you have to go and have a look, you know. Um, yes, I've done several courses on different interesting subjects. The first one I did was called Spicing Up the Blues, which is a 10-hour video uh, course on the blues. You know, it starts very traditionally, but then it, you know, it. I like to kind of spice up the blues so that you're not always playing the standard stuff on blues. So yeah, I give people a lot of information in that direction. And then the second course I put up there was about my sweep picking technique, which everybody was interested in. Um, and, you know, I hadn't done anything since the 80s, so I had to bring it up to date because I've explored and discovered a lot of new things over the last 30 years or so. So I did uh, a new video course, a uh, 10-hour course on sweep picking. 
uh, I call it Gambale sweep picking. And then, you know, there's several other courses. I did a huge uh, music theory. You know, people are scared of music theory, especially guitar players. They go, oh, I don't, if I learn all this harmony, I'm going to, you know, play jazz. And it's really not the case. It's just not true. Or I'm going to lose my feel, man. Look, you know, uh, if you have your heart, your heart's not going anywhere. Your feel is your feel, you know. Uh, I've always loved the idea of uh, uh, mixing intellect with soul, you know. Um, and that's why uh, I love to learn more information about music and, and theory. And because uh, it just expands my head and makes me go into different directions or helps me. It inspires me. It's not something that to be fearful of. And, you know, the mathematics is pretty easy. I mean, anybody can count to 13. That's about as hard as number-wise that music theory is, you know. So uh, when I was, I was head of the guitar department at LA Music Academy in Los Angeles for uh, about 10 years, and it was a little uh, private school and I wrote all the curriculum for that school. So, you know, aside from all my touring and playing and making albums as an artist, which is still my, my principal thing that I do, uh, I love to educate as well. And I had this, um, one of the courses I put up on my school is called Peace and Harmony, because I want people to come to peace with harmony and learning. <laughs> the. It's called the, uh, the Theory of Creativity. Okay. And... It's an 18-hour course that was condensed from a one-year online school, uh, uh, sorry, a uh, physical school at LA Music Academy. So it was a one-year course condensed into 18 hours of video, and it's pretty cool. And I always say it's the only theory course you will ever need. So, uh, yeah, it's all there. There's several other courses too. You can go and check it out for yourselves. Nice. Nice one. Mate, um, now you mentioned that when you were in LA, you saw Chick career and, and you thought, these guys need a guitar player. And then a year later you were playing with them. How did that come about? Yeah. Well, um, you know, you have to be in the right place at the right time and you have to be the right man for the job. Um, you know, Chick was someone I admired since I was 13. I discovered his music and started going down a different path. You know, all my friends were listening to Led Zeppelin and, and Pink Floyd and all that stuff back then in the 70s. And I, when I discovered Chick, I, I knew my path was diverging from the norm a little bit, you know, going down a different path. And, you know, I never thought my, my path would cross with Chick himself, you know. I, yeah. I just thought that that was beyond. Uh, it seemed stratospheric to me. Um, but I was drawn to L.A. because all my favorite recordings were coming out of L.A. So I went there. And it was great. I spent a year at GIT uh, practicing like mad. And, um, you know, I, I just happened to run into the right sort of people. I was uh, doing an album with a guy called Jeff Berlin, a bass player, quite a famous bass player. And uh, we did it at Mad Hatter Studios, which was Chick's studio at the time. And when I walked into the place, I went, oh, my gosh, you know, it was like one degree of separation here, you know. I was just impressed because a lot of the album covers were, you know, in beautiful frames, the original album covers and stuff like that, you know. So, yeah. and I got to play the pianos, and so many of so many of my favorite albums were done in that very studio. 
Wow. So it was kind of like Mecca for me. <laughs> but I remember leaving my leaving the studio one day um, and loading up my gear and somebody came out of the office uh, in the floor below. And I knew Chick's office, uh, offices were there and his publishing and everything. And I met somebody and I said, look, I'll give you my card. I don't know if Chick ever needs a guitar player, but, you know, here's my name. And please, you got to give me a call. I want to be considered. And this girl was Chick's manager's secretary, personal secretary. And she went, ah, Frank of Bali. I know that name. I said, really? She said, yeah, yeah. It's um, my, my husband plays with you. He's a famous drummer, Tommy Breckline. Oh, wow. Who played on several of Chick's records. And, uh, you know, and so it just led from there. About six months later, I got a call for an audition. And the rest is pretty much history. Uh, I got the gig, of course. And. Was cool, great. Awesome. It off launched. It was like uh, you know taking off in the shuttle, space shuttle. <laughs> and did you do most of your playing with Chick, or have you got other artists that you did a lot of touring with as well, or was that your main gig? Um, well, my main gig is my band. Believe it or not, I yeah. tour under my own name, Frank and Bali, and I have for many, many years. Uh, aside from Chick. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, I, I in the early days of the electric band, which was kind of mm, around 86, in October 86, I joined the band. And from 86 to 92, we were full on touring. And we were playing for huge audiences all over the world. And then there was a 10 year hiatus. In, in fact, at that time, I left the band because I, I wanted to pursue my own music more so. I had just gotten a good five uh, album record deal with a major label and I'd already done three albums before that. So I was into doing my own music at that point. You know, I love Chick, but I had my own artistic expression too. And I wanted to get that out. Of course. And, you know, I've done 20 something albums with uh, my own uh, bands and my own music. I did about six albums with Chick. Uh, I was also for 20 years in a band called Vital Information, which was the drummer from Journey, uh, Steve Smith, very famous drummer. Uh, that was his band, but I did a lot of the writing for roughly 10 albums or so that I did with them. Uh, the keyboard player was Santana's keyboard player for many years, uh, Tom Costa, and he helped, or he co-wrote uh, many of uh, Santana's hits during that time, like... Um, Europa and a few other very important tunes of Carlos's early catalog. And uh, so it was a great band. I did that for 20 years. We toured in that band too. So at one point I was in three bands and uh, so it was a lot of work, uh, but it was great. And um, I also worked with Jean-Luc Ponty, the very famous uh, jazz violinist. Um, and in fact, I loved his music about as much as I loved Chick's music and i actually got that gig before i played with chick okay. and we did one or two one one year u.s tour for sure uh and then i heard about chick's audition i went oh, you know i'll see if i can get that gig too <laughs> you know have my cake and eat it and uh so yeah that's what else i, I mean i've worked with a great drummer too from the ma vishnu orchestra days uh, uh billy cobham and I uh, did quite a few tours with him too. You know, when the phone rings, I answer it. And if yeah. it's something interesting, I'll do it. But, you know, as always, my main focus is to do my own music. 
as much as possible. And, uh, but, you know, if, if there's always people I've wanted to play with, you know, and so you got to do it sometimes. You know, if Chick calls, I usually say yes. I'm not going to say, oh, no, I'm a bit busy, Chick. Uh, I don't know if, you know, we have to work out our schedules too, you know, and the good thing about Chick was that he always worked way in advance. I mean, he would book us a year ahead or a year and a half ahead. So, you know, we were always available. Most people don't have the calendar booked that far in advance, sure. but he did. So that, that always worked for me. So that was great. You know, so I could always manipulate and do my things in and around uh, those schedules too. Okay. So how about going back to when you were in Australia? Were you gigging much in Australia before moving to LA? Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. Uh, the first, well, several times when I would come back to Australia, people thought I was American because I just came out of nowhere. You know, most people were not aware that I was in Australia, uh, born and raised. And yeah, look, you know, in Canberra, in the, the when I was coming up in the late 60s, Seventies, there were tons of clubs to play in. There were clubs everywhere. Um, every ethnic group had their own club. You know, there was the Finnish Australian club, the Italian Australian club, the German Australian club. It just went on and on and on. And they would all have dances, and there were the football clubs too. I worked like mad. In the at one point, I was working six nights a week, really honing my craft. But it was cover bands, you know where they were the pop bands or they were um, country. Country music was huge in Canberra, and you could work six nights a week if you had a country band. And we had a really nice country band where we all sang. I, lo I missed the singing, you know. I was one of the lead singers or at least one of the harmony singers uh, most of the time. And um, I returned to that a little bit on my last two records. They're all vocal records. But um, so, you know, I was definitely doing a lot. My older brother, Nunzio, was the bass player, and he was he's the consummate businessman. You wouldn't believe what he's doing now. He's going to be like the next Bill Gates very shortly. Um, but I, I digress. Back then, he was a really good bass player and singer, too. And um, he put together a band called Night Flight, and that was a band that we we actually toured up and down the coast. We played in Sydney quite a bit. We we had a band that was a disco band because in the late seventies, discos disco music hit, and a lot of the rock bands went, "Nah, we're not going to play that shit, man. That's that's horrible, you know." Yeah. We resist, and fair enough too. But I, we were way into all kinds of music. I mean, for me, Earth, Wind, and Fire. Jamming on Earth, Wind, and Fire was okay with me. We we put a lot of, and you know, we played Michael Jackson tunes and all that stuff that people went nuts hearing it live. So we ended up working a lot in discos where most bands, you know, just didn't play. They didn't, didn't want to go in there. So we would be half hour on, half hour off with discos, and it was brilliant. We worked like mad. We went all the way up to Cairns uh, and down. And... Um, Good. It was a good experience. Good kind of road trip experience. My first uh, real band. I was still quite young. I was probably 19, 20. Yeah. Uh, but I was playing professionally since I was 13. I, my brother got gigs and, you know, I'd be up late at night. We'd have gigs in Goldburn and all these towns, of, you know, uh, sheep shearing sheds. It didn't matter where the heck we played. You know, 
and uh, and I remember all my early classes in high school. I just failed because I was half asleep or I get there late because I had to gig the night before and I was making money. You know? yeah, yeah. So that's how it, you know, I, my passion was music from a very early age. And, you know, that's what I wanted to do. It was destiny. You know, I didn't yeah. have a choice in the matter. It was just what I do, you know. Yep. I've never had a real job. That's what I always tell people. <laughs> so do you find that never there had- was a, a, a point where – you said you started playing in the pubs at 13. So I was like 14 myself. And that really cemented things for me because it wasn't a case of, I'm playing this song at home and I'm going to play half the song. No, even if you didn't like that song, you had to play it from beginning to end like you meant it. Um, and, I, and I think those early days playing those pub gigs really cemented things for me. Was there a point that really cemented things for you? Yes, actually, one it, mine was much earlier. There was a pop festival called, I think, Sunbury. Is, it, is that yeah, still yeah. happening? That's Sunbury, over in Western Australia? A, no, no. This one was uh, somewhere in New South Wales, and I don't remember. I was nine. But my brother dragged me to this festival, and somehow he talked one of the bands into letting me jam. On blues, you know, because I was already pretty proficient at nine playing blues, you know. And so I was this little kid, and I didn't even stand up on the stage. I sat on the edge with my feet dangling, my, my legs dangling, right? And I'm playing a blues. And it was very early in the festival. I mean, it was almost like pre-festival, but there was about a 1,000 people. And I played, and hearing that crowd just roar at me, you know, that has an effect on you. Oh, yeah. You know, as a little impressionable kid, I went, oh, my gosh, they like it. You know, (laughs) I thought maybe I can do this for a living. I wasn't thinking that. But I just remember the rush that it gave me, you know. Uh, And then some people go chasing that all their lives, you know, but... Uh, and it is a thrill to be in front of a big audience. It always is, you know. Um, so that was the earliest uh, recollection for me, you know. Nine at a pop festival playing, jamming on, with a blues. It was great. What a great uh, initiation. <laughs> Lawrence Gambali, I'm not sure if that's one of your brothers, or says that Sunbury was in Victoria. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Lawrence. He's my nephew. Oh, there you my, go. There you go. Yeah, my brother's uh, yeah, uh, oldest and first son. Yes. Uh-huh. I love him dearly. Hello, Lawrence, wherever you are. So I am going to get to the questions there, uh, folks. So keep leaving, leaving some there. I can see there's a few there, and I'll come to them in a, in a bit while we chat a bit more. But I did want to ask Frank. I, I mentioned the clinic that I saw you at, and um, – I can remember you said after you played for a while, is there any questions? And everyone stuck their hand up. And then you went, does anybody have any questions not about my picking? And everyone put their hands down. And you went, okay, let me explain the picking. And that was the first time I'd ever seen anybody sweet pick. And it was just mind blown. You You were one of the first guys out there doing it, if not the first guy did you see that somewhere? Did you come up with that concept somehow? How did that, that all come about? 
there were a lot of factors uh, with the sweet picking. You know, and there's, I'll tell you a little story because it's important, I think. You know, I, I've recently claimed it as my own um, to a huge amount of controversy. <laughs> you know, people say, ah, you know, Les Paul did, you know, this, he did. You know, they would do this little little flurry. Yep. And I go, yes, yes, he did that. And then there would be, you know, uh, you know, Django Reinhardt did. You know, they would do this little thing. And I said, but nobody did this. Nobody did that. No. You know? <laughs> and, it, you know, it's this stream of consciousness all based on sweeping. And, you know, and for many, when I first hit the scene, it was like I would... I had dropped from Mars or something. It really was a revolutionary way to play. And, you know, and everybody went, oh, of course, you know, it's that uh, uh, hindsight has 2020 vision. Uh, it's hilarious to me that, uh, you know, people went, oh, well, of course, why wouldn't you rake across the strings? I mean, it makes perfect sense, right? Yep. You know, if you're going to play uh, three notes in a row, on different strings, why on earth would you alternate? It just doesn't make any sense at all. Raking or sweeping across makes the most sense. And I just took that and kept going with it. Uh, it's endless, really. I was the first to write a book on the subject called Speed Picking. I wasn't even allowed to use uh, Sweep Picking. I wanted the title to be Sweep Picking, yeah. but the publisher said, but nobody knows what it is. They're not going to have a clue what the subject is, right? We're talking early days on this, right? So uh, he said, Let, let's call it speed picking. At least they know it's got something to do with playing fast and, you know, uh, it's a technique uh, about picking. And there's ever the whole world of guitar, there's very little written on the right hand and picking. A lot of it's focused on harmony and licks and this and that, but you know, think about it. In reality, there's hardly anything out there on how to get organized with the pick. And really, it's 50% of what we're doing here. You know, it's a, yeah, it's a major part that we need to get organized one way or another in some fashion, whether it's alternate picking or sweep or a combination or tapping or you know, the Holdsworth's technique with the hammering and the pull-off. doesn't matter what you do. At some point, you need to get organized so that it's a, so that you can flow freely without, you know, hindrances. Um, so I, I wrote the book. I wanted to share it because I thought it was such a, an important development in the guitar. So I wrote the book. In fact, I wrote the book while I was still a student at GIT in 1983. I would practicing in a you know in a room. The, the other students would come up to me, and go, man, hey, what is that you're doing? Show me. How do you do that? I got so uh, frustrated that I couldn't practice because I would be showing people what I was doing. I, yeah. I wrote the book. I just wrote it and um, and I made photocopies. And so when any if anybody would come up to me, I say, you know, they'd say, what are you doing? I say, here, take this. <laughs> Have this go study 
leave me, let me practice. Yeah. And so that's how that started. And uh, that book still sells today. It's one of those things. It's an ongoing uh, product. And, you know, then I did video in roughly 85, 86 or something. And I wanted to share it with the world because I think it's an important uh, development. And it's now obviously part of the guitar lexicon. It's, it's an accepted technique. Whereas, you know, I think most people didn't do it because uh, the, the biggest hurdle was doing it in time. Playing it in time is really weird when you're, you know, you pick as moving strange directions. The, the downbeats can be on upstroke or downstroke. When you play alternate, there's always this metronomic feel to alternate, you know. You don't have that sensation at all. It's like it's like diving out of a, a an airplane, you know. <laughs> it's it's a free fall kind of feeling. Yep, yep. That you control that situation too. You know, you if you're an experienced skydiver, you know what you're doing. You're not afraid. You jump. You know that if you do this, that, and the other, it and then launch the parachute, and you're all all goes well. If you threw me out of an airplane, it would be a very different experience. So do you have certain little things like if you're about to change direction of your sweep, do you consciously maybe like do a, a hammer-on on that string and then start with an up? Is, it, is there a technique that you've developed over the years? There's no rule. I'll say that first. There are no rules, but... The essential thing about sweeping is that every time you go from one string to the next, and this is not all the time, if you want to do it as a pure technical exercise, then every time you go from one string to the next, the pick should go in the same direction. And that's fundamentally it. So you line up, and it came down to the simple formula of odd and even. If you want to go in one direction, low to high, or high to low, you need an odd, odd number of notes on the string. If you want to change direction, you need an even number. Makes sense. If you're going down, one, two will t return you to the other direction. Or one, two. And one, two, three will give you the flow, or just one right through. Or five, one, two, three, four, five. Odd numbers will keep you going in a direction. Even numbers will turn it around. So if you organize your notes on the fretboard in a similar way, then you should have flow. So if you, for example, uh, I, I remember this was one of the arpeggios in the book was the major seven. And it's, you know, that was a revolutionary shape. Because arpeggios are hard on guitar. You know, this was the traditional shape. This one here. This is in all the books. Uh -huh. And for the life of me, you can never play or gracefully. This is the best I can do after whatever 150 years of playing guitar. That's with alternate. Yep. It's a complete and utter disaster. It just doesn't work. So I went, you know, this is ridiculous. We're going to find a way to do this. Um, and so I tried to find a, a, a sweet method. This part was okay, the fingering. But I changed the top to only two notes. I had to break a few rules. Yeah. So I go, that part makes sense. I can go one stroke down for four notes, one stroke up for four notes. 
the first part I had to change was this. And the beautiful thing about guitar is that we have so many notes that are the same in different places. You can, there, are, there is always a side street to get around the traffic, I always say. There's always another way around. So I did this religiously for many years to refinger things and find other ways. So instead of playing this, uh, this is a C major seven arpeggio, C, E, G, B. This B, uh, uh, sorry, the G, I just put it over here. It's the same note. Okay. Instead of this first part, I was doing three notes all on separate strings and then having three notes on the D string, which kept my formula going. So it's down, up, down, 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 up, 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 down, up, up, and then two to turn around. Okay. Now, it's not a pure major seven arpeggio, but it's close enough for me. Um, and now if I had to alternate pick this, I would have to pick 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 16, 17 times, right? With sweeping, I go 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. That land for a second. Seven picking strokes as opposed to an alternate picker who would have to pay, pick and pay 17 times uh, to get the same result. So for me, the hard thing is playing it in time. And the thing about sweeping is it's not really a slow technique. It's better for playing. It's Think of it like fifth and sixth gear of a pretty cool BMW. You know, <laughs> you're going really, really, really fast. Yep. But it's... It's cruising along. It's not working hard. And you wouldn't use sixth gear to go from a standing start. It's a good analogy because, you know, gears, it's it's an extra, it's that fifth and sixth gear is what I, the way I consider sh uh, sweeping to be. If I'm playing slow... like anybody else that's alternate mostly but when I will kick it up you know it's that extra gear yeah <laughs> and it's yeah. you get it it's effortless you know and it's beautiful and it's poetic it's poetry in motion and it's it's like an athlete when you think of um you know i think of swimmers sometimes swimmers they, they go mad even speedos they're trying to shave a, an ounce off their speedo so they can just get that little bit faster yeah. or runner you know you watch a runner in slow motion it's just beautiful the the, the motion has to be down to its absolute minimum to get that slight edge. Uh, you know, Formula One cars, they're shaving an ounce off a piston or they're making it out of, you know, carbon fiber or something. Yep. Anything to get that of higher efficiency for the, for the power. And that's how I felt about this technique. To me, it's, it's, it's glorious. And I don't understand why 
everyone doesn't use it. <laughs> I'm a little biased like that, but you know, shit, it's it's brilliant. I really, I'm not just saying that from an ego point of view. I'm saying it because it really is a wonderful technique that has liberated me from the typical roadblocks that that players get to. You know, yeah, yeah. it's hard to get beyond that place and to be comfortable at it. You know to be able to do it effortlessly when you need it. You know, I don't want to play fast all the time. I'll play a melody too. I'm happy to have that facility. It's like getting in a BMW and having all six gears and all that power at your command. So Frank, when you're not sweeping, do you arrange your your scales on the fretboard into three note per string type of scale shapes, or do you use the, the cage system? Is there a particular method that you use to view the fretboard? I use them all. Yep. I, I'm not limited to uh, positions or hand positions or particular shapes or, you know, after all these years of playing, I know my fretboard pretty darn well you know i can play a scale on one string you know depends what i'm playing i i love the joy of playing and the improvisation whether i'm if i'm in a position i can sweep this is the sum of my recent discoveries is is sweeping inside traditional shapes cool So that kind of stuff is, that's a traditional shape. That's a regular minor pentatonic. Yep. So I can sweep anywhere I can play three notes, shapes. I can do that, of course, you know, but I open when I'm improvising. matter where I am it's yep. just it's like having a football field and you can run jump skip hop do whatever you can know, cartwheels this is my playground so I'm gonna play on it you know it's nice. it's the the land for me <laughs> it's, yep. it's where I try to create and be spontaneous and try not to repeat myself too many times you know we have our little loops that we fall into uh, that was one of the things I loved about Chick Corea. He was the consummate improviser. Many people would come, you know, to our concerts and they would see him play one night and then we'd move on to the next city. But I had to hear him night after night after night. And when you're, uh, you know, in the band of a master like that, a grand master, you know, you really know what, the the level that is attainable by a human you know it's a, a living example of what's possible and you know it seemed you always knew it was him playing but it, he just didn't repeat himself and it used to really inspire me when i'm performing with him to go places that i had never went you know you know he we had these discussions he would say well what does improvising mean to you frank and I said, well well, to improvise is to, to play spontaneously. And he says, exactly. No premeditated concept of what you're going to do. You're responding, you're, you're completely open and free to be in the moment. 
and that's beautiful. You know, that's the real what improvisation means. So to live up to that and be able to do that spontaneously without falling into our normal, you know, licks and patterns and pitfalls that we fall. It's not a pitfall, you know. Sometimes people consider that's what makes a person style or recognizable is the things that they do often, you know. But, uh, you know, uh, I think improvising the true sense of the word, it was the thing that really got me into the joy of improvisation and being free to play anywhere and do anything. Of course, you have to know the positions. I'm not saying that they're not useful. You have to know those. It's like learning a language. There's certain words you got to use. i got to use the word use if I'm going to use the word. <laughs> You know, it's, there's certain things you need to have. It's part of your, you know, it's your vocabulary. And, you know, having freedom on the fretboard in the way that I think I have after 50 years of playing uh, is having the knowledge that and the, and the ease to know all my keys and all my notes and all my positions and all my patterns. Look, it's only about two feet long, folks. How long can it take to learn it? You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you have to really sit and figure it out because it's a it's a labyrinth, mm -hmm. you know, maze. So, Frank, I wanted to ask you about uh, gear um, before the time gets right. away on us too much. Now, what did you start out playing back when you were 13 and you were playing pubs uh, and clubs back then? What type of gear were you using in the early days, and what, what did you start on? Well, uh, you know, we, we started pretty humbly with mostly copies of copies of copies that were cheap. Uh, you know, you have to start somewhere. <clears throat> but I remember the happiest day of my life, or one of them, I should say, one of many, <laughs> was uh, my 13th birthday. Brother Nunes had conspired with my parents um, to buy me a guitar. Now, I thought it was going to be this cheapy SG copy, like a, a thing, I think it's called a Corona. Horrible thing with a Bigsby, fake Bigsby, and it would have been the biggest piece of, you know, what. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so it was hard for me to get excited about that. You know, they said, oh, we're going to get you this lovely Corona. It's a fantastic guitar. You're going to love it, you know. I'm going, <laughs> this is terrible. And, um, you know, much I surprised they brought this guitar and I went, well, this doesn't look like a Corona case. I opened it up and it was an L-series Strat, a nice 1964 Strat, just like Hendrix's one, that uh, white Whoa. color with the, uh, with the white guard. Uh, and I went, you know, but this was only like 1960. How old would it? No, it would have been not early 70s. So those guitars weren't expensive. Yeah. But for me, it was like the holy grail you know i went wow a real strat and my playing just took off from there you know so i've always thought you know parents should always buy their children the most expensive instrument they can afford because it's always saleable you know a great instrument is easy to sell it's much easier than a crappy cheap thing to sell you know and uh, and the, but the key point is that it, it is a really inspirational thing for the for the child. You know, mm -hmm. uh, it blew my mind basically. And uh, anyway, so playing in gigs, I remember the first amp I had was a Fender Twin, and I played that to death for a long time. And I used a bunch of pedals for distortion and stuff. And uh, 
those were my earliest instruments. I remember buying a Les Paul too at one point. I had a nice, so I had the the two regular camps, a black yep. Les Paul uh, custom mid sixties, around there, 68, something like that. And my Strat, and I was happy as a clam. Those were my main instruments for many, many years back in the early days, you know, which are pretty traditional really. Yeah. But then I got into Marshall amps and I still love the heck out of Marshall amps there. To me, they are the, the like hand and glove for a guitar. It, you know, the guitar and the amp, a combo, you know, any guitar through a nice, a, a good sounding Marshall combo, not combo, but, a, you know, uh, 21, 20, uh, the, uh, I've forgotten them. I don't use them at the moment because I'm endorsing some other amps, but, uh, you know, some of the earlier Marshalls, uh, the Blues Breaker combo, stuff like that. Those yep. things just sound amazing to me. They just sound great. Cool. Uh, and you use JCM. that? JCMs is what I was thinking of, the JCM one, heads. Uh, yep, yep. JCM, yeah. Nice. And is that what you used most of your time in Australia before you, you relocated over to uh, LA? Yep. And then was that a bit of a, a switch? Because that was, what, the 80s when you went over there, right? So. Did they yeah, become really. like rack, like everyone else, rack gear, or did you stick to the Marshall? Uh, well, I sold everything before I left Australia because I knew I could buy it all for half price over there, which was true. You know, I, I ended up buying a Strat and a Tele when I was over there, um, and those were the guitars I used throughout most of my time at school and teaching there. <clears throat> and... Uh, <clears throat> That was it, really. I, I had a Marshall as well. I don't remember which one it was. It was a Marshall combo. But that was what I was using for the local gigs at first. And then, yes, I got into the rack gear too. I was using a Marshall preamp. It was called the JMP-1, which was a very nice sounding preamp uh, with uh, various effects, rack mount stuff. Mm -hmm. And I always had a 412 cab. I always like the 412 Celestine cabs. That's just a mainstay most of the time. Or 212 uh, Celestine cab. Yeah, you know how it is. I got, I got a couple of them behind me there, mate. <laughs> yeah, you've got those. Because <laughs> yeah. they just sound perfect. They do. Uh, there's nothing else to be said, really. Mm. Mm. Yeah. You only go sideways from there. You can't go ahead. I haven't heard better sounding speakers. Mm hmm. But everything's direct nowadays, so it's a bit strange. I kind of miss, uh, you know, uh, I still like to record with a mic and speakers when I'm recording guitars. Something Rather, about that. I do go direct sometimes just for convenience, you know, but uh, it's always nice to hear the speaker. Yeah. If you have the, you know, the space to do it, and uh, why not? So you say you're going direct. Is there a particular unit that you're using for your direct guitar tones now? Yeah, uh, I was using um, DV Mark stuff quite a bit, and uh, I used their uh, multi-amp FG, which is one I helped them with uh, designing uh, for the last two records. Uh, the last record I did is called Salve, and it's got some beautiful tones. I was able to, with the help of some nice, um, you know, uh, plug-in EQs, uh, really dial in you can really dial in pretty much anything these days you can input almost anything and then tweak and get pretty close to 
you know, whatever you were getting from an app. So it is getting very close to the real thing these days. Mm -hmm. uh, a friend, I'm in Barcelona and all my, everything I own, except for this guitar and a few little bits and bobs is in two 40 foot containers waiting to be shipped over from Los yeah. Angeles. We're still waiting on our house and uh, stuff like that. So a friend lent me this little Yamaha. It's a desktop amp and it's very, very cool. That's what I've been using lately here while I'm just, he, he just gave me a nice little amp to practice with. I should, I should have brought more stuff with me, but I just, you know, I remember we flew the three of us, me and my wife and daughter, um, 15 suitcases, only one of which was mine. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I just, that was it. I just took one suitcase and that's it. So I didn't expect that we'd be out of our, you know, the, the buying, house buying process in Spain is uh, quite illuminating. <laughs> it takes, yeah. it seems to take forever. Yeah. Uh, I would have had two houses bought in, a, in America by now yep. and easily. And, but there's a lot of bureaucracy, but once you get beyond that, it's awesome, you know, but there are, you know, they just don't take any risk here at all. Everything's above board, except from the sellers. Everybody's trying to, uh, you know, do a deal under the table. There's, you know, it's amazing. <laughs> it's, yeah, right. it's a little bit. Field. I'm learning how things operate here. So, okay, but it's okay. cool. What about guitars, Frank? Um, like now, I saw you using the Ibanez, um, the S series, the Sabers back in the day, yeah. uh, with the Floyd yeah, Roses and everything. Now I see you've yeah, got had... the uh, the yellow Strat there. Tell us the progression yeah. of the guitars from then. Well, I've designed quite a few guitars uh, in conjunction with uh, you know, and I feel quite uh, lucky to be in a position to be able to help design guitars you should see this one this is my latest design and uh i don't know if you can see this too well but it's oh look at that beautiful. it's a prototype sorry about the lighting folks are you right see the light. yeah but this is a lovely uh this is my second model that i'm designing with uh with court i have an acoustic guitar with them called uh a frank and barley lux steel string it's a gorgeous acoustic and it's very original looking. It looks like nothing else. L-U-X-E, Frankenbali Lux. And this is going to be the Lux Classical, which we expect to have on the market by next year. Wow. So there'll be a steel string and a, and a classical version. Beautiful guitars. I love them. This, this prototype knocked me out. There's just a few details we're going to change. But it's fundamentally there. You know, I get to design them all, the, the inlays and, and the woods and, you know, how it's going to look. It's it's a beautiful uh, thing. Um, it goes back to Ibanez. I think Ibanez was the first company that signed me back in the late 80s when I was with Chick and stuff. People came to me to endorse their product. And Ibanez, we had four guitars uh, that were the S-based guitars, the S-Sabre. And um, there was the FGM 100, 200, 300, and 400, all unique and, you know, a progression over a, something like a 15-year period. We, we, uh, and I still have quite a number of those, actually. Uh, you can still find them on eBay occasionally. Yeah. Um, and they're beautiful guitars, very nice, very thin, very light. And then I went to Yamaha, and I designed a really beautiful guitar with them called the 
Yamaha AESFG, and it's quite a rare guitar because they didn't make very many of them. <clears throat> the reason being was that it was my demands for what I wanted on that guitar was so complex. Even the, the, the guy I was working with, the designer, I think his name was John Gadesi at Yamaha, he had to scratch his head and put a lot of thought into just trying to figure a way to deliver what I was asking for because I wanted pickups mounted from the back. On my Yamaha, sorry, on my uh, Ibanez FGM 200, the pickups were mounted from behind. And I love the way that looks. It gives a very clean look like this, like the Strat. They use a pick guard to, to create that effect, but I wanted to have the, the, the pickups emerging from the body of the guitar. So cool. it, it's the same flush effect, but it, it kind of comes out of the body of the instrument. So, but I wanted a bolt-on neck at the same time, and I wanted a tremolo. And the guy went, this can't do all that, you know. <laughs> but we found a way, and it was interesting. We even came across it. Well, we were wondering where to put the, you know, how the springs in the back of a Strat have a claw uh, where the springs go. And we had nowhere to put it. The neck reached through to about the, you know, the center of the body or a bit beyond and to put the bridge we had nowhere to put the uh the, the claw that holds the spring so we put it at the end of the neck and apparently that was something we could have patented because it never been done before there was nowhere else we had no choice and but i remember the first time i plugged it in and played it it was like playing a piano it had that kind of incredible resonant loop that was mind-boggling wow so even though yamaha yamaha when they came to build it they said it's too complicated we can't we don't have a factory and they have like tons of factories they're the biggest company music instrument company in the world they couldn't build it so they had to go to fujigen which was a big factory in japan at the time that were making guitars for everybody gibson fender you name it <clears throat> custom instruments and so they built it, which doubled the price of what it should have been. So it was it was a bit of a failure on the market, sadly, because it's a phenomenal guitar. And I can only say that because uh, I own two of them, and uh, and I remember playing it with a lot of joy. Uh, and you can still find them on eBay also. It's a Yamaha AES-FG, and I highly recommend them. They're a very unique and original instrument uh, in many, many ways. And then I went to Kiesel after that, and we designed the FGM, sorry, the FG1, which was like a mini 335 uh, chambered and beautiful resonant tones. I think Kiesel makes some of the most beautiful instruments right now. They're, mm. they're just, they're killing it. They're doing so beautifully uh, yeah. the work. They, it's just phenomenal and creative i love they're on a cutting edge you know i like companies that are moving things forward you know i like the traditional instruments but you know for me this guitar plays better than a real strat because it's just more comfortable you know it doesn't mm -hmm. have the giant lock there uh it has everything a strat would have <clears throat> but it's not a strat yeah <laughs> you know there are there is improvements on stuff that was designed in the 50s i mean come on not many people driving 1950s cars around the place, you know. Uh, it, they're beautiful instruments, but there's there is improvement. So we got to. I like to stay on the cutting edge, and uh, 
So that's a brief history of all my, my guitar uh, creations to date. I'm very excited about this classical from Court. Very beautiful. Well, Court makes some great guitars at great prices. I've known that over the years. As long as I've been playing, I've seen guitars that should be a lot more expensive um, made by Court. And they also make other brands as well, don't they? They, they don't just make the Court-branded ones. They also, like you said, with Fuji again, build other people's guitars for them. That's right. They're a massive company, and I, I didn't realize it at the time, but they do make guitars for just about everybody. So, in fact, that's more than 50% of their business is making guitars for other people. But, you know, they do make their own brands, and they're really coming on strong with a lot of different uh, guitars at the moment. Uh, I'd like to work with them a little more closely and consult a little bit, and, uh, you know, because... I'd like to help steer them in a good direction as far as my abilities and knowledge of guitars. You know, I think it's important to always ask the musicians playing them, the guitar players, to, to get our input. You know, it's got to be valuable. I mean, we play these things every day. Uh -huh. And so we know what a guitar should have, right? We know how it should resonate. We know, you know, ergonomically what it needs to have. It also needs to look aesthetically beautiful. You can't miss any of the details. And, uh, you know, God is in the details. I, I'm a, a stickler for details. And um, and so, yeah, I, I'm glad that these companies have allowed me to give my input uh, on these guitars because I think it only just improves them, you know. Nice one. Frank, I'm going to go through some of the uh, viewer comments there, mate, and just uh, see if there's a few questions for you. Right at the top there, Sand Blastskin says, Hi, Frank. Do you have plans to do any clinics after the whole COVID thing is over? I plan to do a whole bunch of everything after this bloody COVID. <laughs> so I'm tired of this nonsense. I'm sure we all are. Yeah, look, you know, I've had a, a, an eight-week European tour that was supposed to happen in March 2020. It was postponed to March 2021. You know, and of course, it's been postponed to March 2022. And I'm going, how long could this go on, you know? Uh, I think musicians and, and the arts in general have been hit the hardest because, you know, we were the first to go down and now we'll probably be the last to get back up again. So it's mm. been a rough time mm. for musicians. And, you know, so, yeah, look, I'm, I'm ready. Um, I'm anxious to get back to live performance, of course, clinics and whatever else comes forward. Sure. Absolutely. Yes. There's a lot of shout outs uh, on there. Just people saying hello. A few people from Brazil actually watching. So it must be uh, early morning yeah. over there. Um, I just did a live thing last night for Brazil. Ah, okay. Uh, well, yeah. Someone is saying AI in Spain. AI in Spain has a beautiful wine from the region of Rioja. Enjoy greetings here from Brazil. Alberto Mamsto says, I also learned modes from Frank. You are forever immortalized in my memory. So there you go, mate. You, you did make, make an impact. Good. Uh, a few other shout-outs. Without knowing modes. I couldn't play anything, so it's fundamental, yes. Go on, more shout-outs? More shout-outs, yeah. Um, yeah, greetings from Brazil. There's a lot of Brazilians watching. Um, obrigado. Time. Uh, obrigado. Frank is a reference to me. Mode no more mysteries. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Frank, you're such a visionary guitar player. 
chop building exercise, great, really works. Then I get mm-hmm. to where Lawrence said Sunbury was in Victoria. Thanks for that, Lawrence. Um, yes. What was it like playing with GHS from Glenn Barnes? Oh, that's Gambali Hammond Smith. I forgot to mention that was another group. Uh, we did three records. Um, it was terrific fun. You know, it was the first time I'd ever recorded. Uh, well, when we did the first record, it was called uh, Show Me What You Can Do. I mean, those three records, I blasted through those records. I There was no holds barred. We just went for it. And um, and for me, it was a bit, uh, I was a bit nervous on the first record because I'd never really recorded trio before. You know, I was so used to having keyboard players and horn players and, you know, that big wall of chords so I could play on top of it. And so it was very different being in a trio situation with no singer. I mean, we were an instrumental group, so the guitar had to cover a lot of stuff. And I wrote, you know, I didn't write all the music, but I wrote most of it uh, and, you know, worked. I actually wrote a lot of stuff on the piano, believe it or not, because uh, Steve Smith had a really nice piano, which I bought from him. Actually, it's my piano now. where I would work the bass and chords together so that the bass was really integral in the melodic uh, part of the song, or you know, because I wanted it, since I really needed the bass to be part of the whole thing, the melodic part of the, as well as the rhythmic thing from the bass. So, so Stu got to play some cool parts and he wrote some cool parts for the, you know, he wrote a lot of stuff too for the, for the group. And, you know, when we all got together, the first record, we did 10 songs in 10 days and we came in with nothing. Wow. And we got up in the morning and it was an all day process, like from 10 a.m. to midnight. And it, it was great. You know, this is what musicians live for. For me, it was the best thing ever to be on that kind of a schedule. It's pressure, and we only it was a self imposed pressure because I think Steve had to go off on a tour somewhere else. So we had 10 days, and this is it, we've got to make a record. And you know, some people make a record in one day. You know, if you have the tunes prepared, you can just go in and play them, and that's it, you're done in a day or two. Um, we didn't have anything, so we got in the morning, we got in, and we had breakfast, and we got up and we jammed. We jammed and jammed until we found something. Oh, that, that, that'll work, you know. That's kind of a cool bit. Let's put that with this other idea and, you know. And then we'd rehearse what we, you know, we'd take lunch and I would kind of formalize it, write a little quick chart and organize an arrangement. Uh, well, we kind of did the arrangements together too. And then the afternoon we'd record the tune and we'd mix it and, you know, that was it for 10 days solid. And the result is magic. really wow. is. I mean, wow. Show Me What You Can Do is a formidable record. It's a, it's a guitar. One of those records, in fact, all through the beyond was the most succinct and, and really together one. Uh, the third one we did was called GHS3. And that one was, uh, we all kind of came in prepared. I, I had several tunes already written. So that made the process easier. Uh, but the spark on the first one where I went, oh, man, I don't even know if I can do a tree. What the hell? <laughs> you know, I'm not used to this. And uh, it's got that seat of the pants kind of blowing on there. And it's really just in your face, 
wall of guitar. And it's very cool record. I'm very proud of all three of those records. They're all, uh, you know, proper testament to my abilities and at my peak. And um, so I'm very pleased with those three records. Great experience. Have- a lot of fun. I'm going to have yeah. to check those out, mate. I, uh, I wasn't aware of those. But something sprung to yeah. mind for me as you were talking. You played on an album, I think, with <laughs> Sean Lane and Brett Gussard. Yeah, Centrifugal yeah. Funk, Centrifugal Funk. However, it was you played on that, didn't you? Yes, Man, I did. I yeah. had that album back in the day. I remember special yeah. ordering it, import and everything, and just mind-blowing. Um <laughs> I totally forgot about that. I've had Brett on, Brett Garcet on for a chat. Sean Lane, unfortunately, oh, isn't with us anymore, but what a monster player he was. Yeah, uh, it was, uh, for me, it's a little too much guitar on one record for my personal taste. I liked the record, of course, and, uh, and it was fun to be involved with that. But we, none of us ever played together on that one. The rhythm section recorded, and then everybody came in and did their parts individually. And then we all got to hear what everybody else did at the end. And, you know, having three guitar solos in a row is kind of, you know, you got to have a special taste for that. Yeah. <laughs> for me, it's, like, it's great, but uh, I wouldn't put it on my record, you know what I mean? Sure, three solos sure. in a row. Yeah. Plus as very... a guitar, keyboard, saxophone. But, you know, oh, no, it was, a, it was an epic record for sure. That Definitely. I, I get comments on that all the time. It's an epic record. Centrifugal funk. I'm glad to be on that one uh, amongst some great guitar player heroes. Uh, uh-huh. You know, it was a terrific experience. Just back to the questions there. Uh, Isaac, I'm not sure how to pronounce your last name. Negrin, Negrine. Frank, I love the way you build your chromatic phrases. Could you play some of your favorite examples? They sound, they sound only with their technique. Thanks. So, yeah, Isaac's well, wanting to hear some of your... Thing. I have a whole section on chromatic sweeps in the latest Gambali sweeping course at my online school. Uh, there's a whole hour of video devoted to that. Um, but I, in general, I love chromaticism because you know, it gives you all 12 notes to play instead of just the scale, right? So if I'm in, in E Dorian like this, I can connect anything with anything. And that was one I saw from Chick years ago. Where you go whole steps in half steps, which is chromatic. So um, I could just end up on the fifth there. Nice. And this one circling around the notes you can use all the notes folks Beautiful. Thank you. 
So, so you know, it, it can just go anywhere. You can use all the nodes. Kind of know how. Uh, there can be any elimination. You can take an E minor triad. Either side of the, not either side, but into the E. You know, you can do that kind of approach thing, you know. Either side of the note, that's a good way to get started. And then Beautiful. connecting, I want to go here to here. You know, you can take it out. I can stay outside. In fact, the latest course I'm writing right now is, and it's been requested heavily. It's interesting that people are asking for this a lot from me. They're saying uh, a course on playing outside. So that's exactly what it is. It's going to be a course on playing outside. And it won't be for the squeamish. Okay. Now, as you were playing then, um, I, and I cut to you, I had your name in the way of your picking hand. I had to drag it out of the way just to watch whether you were picking when you went chromatic or whether you were doing the legato thing. But you, you pick, uh, or does it depend Ulti. on what? Ult, yep, whatever, whatever well, needs it at the time. I can, go, I can go, I can put little flurries of sweep in there. I can do sweeps like that. Like sweeping across, it's a combination. To me, sweeping, you know, you, you can't sweep on one string, so you have to alter it. If you want to play more than one note on a string, you know, you have to have a good combination of alternate, and you only sweep when you're going across the strings. Uh -huh. so, so you do need to have both techniques at a pretty good level, you know. I got a pretty decent uh, alternate. But I, I just, yes, you do. I yes, you do. Sweep <laughs> whenever necessary. <laughs> get Mate, that I, I'm going to have to jump on and uh, to the frankandbarleyguitarschool.com and make take advantage of the 40% off to learn some of that myself. The okay. code, once again, for folks, for the letter four, number four, sorry, Australia, all in capitals, gives you 40% yep. off at the moment at frankandbarleyguitarschool.com. I'm only for the weekend. Only, only through only this weekend. weekend. Okay. Yeah, and it'll Sunday night, midnight. Uh, if anybody would like to buy a guitar, uh, I'm selling some to fund some things like this so, uh, so that I can improve my playing. <laughs> so hit me up. Um, I actually am selling some of those um, to get a serious app again. I need, I need the heavy artillery amplifier. Uh, just a few gigs have come my way where I've had to borrow some Soldanos and the like, and it's time to... Get a real app again. Uh, back to the questions there, Frank. Um, one, go soon, yeah, yeah, that's why I'm trying to just round it up, mate. Uh, when mm -hmm. you recorded your solos in Chick's electric band, did Chick let you choose your best solo takes or did he give opinions on it? Hell no. <laughs> it was all live, man. <laughs> all live, yeah? All live and uh, 
very, very much uh, first takes, everything. Um, you know, that's just the way Chick is, you know. I remember I finished his, his favorite solo of mine on any of the electric band records that we did was called, uh, the song was called Make a Wish on the Inside Out album. And it was really hard changes, man. I was playing on the, at the seat of my pants getting through this, and I was just, I just went for it. Sometimes you just go, ah, screw it. I'm going to just blast. I know the chains, but they're hard, but I'm just going to go for it. And he loved it. He, he, it's his favorite solo of mine. And at the end, I played something that I wasn't happy with. I didn't feel like I came out of it very well. And, uh, and I asked him, I said, Chick, you know, he's listening back to it going, oh, cool, you know. And uh, I said, can I fix the end? And he said, no, don't touch it. It's, it's exactly, don't touch anything. But I said, but I kind of screwed up at the end a little bit, you know. And he looks at me, he says, if you didn't like it, why did you play it? Wow. And I had no words to say to that. I went, hmm, yeah, why did I play it? You know? What an amazing insight into how he thinks when... Yeah, yeah I just said, okay, I'm, I'm leaving it that way. And that's the way he loved it. And he wanted all kinds of grit, you know, whether it was a mistake or not. It didn't, didn't bother him yeah. at all. He, he was more into the emotional uh, feeling of that uh, recording. I'm being uh, buzzed to leave. Okay, mate. I uh, will round things up. Um, I, yeah. Frank, thank you so much for your time. Uh, sorry to, to my friends here that I haven't got the questions. Um, Two quick questions. I'll, I'll answer them quickly. Uh, okay. There was one just on do you do finger exercises every day? No, I like to improvise. To me, I'll sit and put a, 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 some changes uh, uh, in Guitar Pro or whatever and uh, start playing. To me, playing and improvising is the joy of playing these days. Exercises, uh, just purely for exercises, are no fun to me. I would rather practice a musical piece, something that's a challenge. If you need a challenge to get your technical abilities better, I would rather do it in a musical way rather than just a, something that's purely finger exercise. That's what I would recommend. Nice. I'll just breeze through them, mate. We're getting shout-outs from everywhere, from Macedonia, Finland, Brazil, Turkey. Uh, there's a super chat from Andre. Thank you very much. There's no question attached to that that I can see. Um, Frank is very special for us. The passion and feeling proposed by Frank is something extraterrestrial thank you very much master that's from andre prado um that's who were your musical influences frank and now what you listen can you quickly uh, is that well i listen to everything pretty much my daughter is exposing me to all kinds of pop music these days which i'm pulling my hair out i don't have any it's already been pulled out and um yeah look everything I listen to jazz, pop, you know, uh, historic music, music that I've loved as a child. You know, I can listen to Beatles, Police, Coltrane, uh, you know, uh, The Eagles, Crosby, Stills. I can listen to Dealey, Ben Long, Quinn and Fire, you know, George Duke, Stanley Clark, all these. There's so much great music out there, you know, and I listen to whatever my daughter's listening to. There's some very cool young artists. Uh, and so, you know, be open because you can learn from everyone. 
you can learn uh, in the places you wouldn't think you could learn from. So, Well, there you go, folks. It. The master has spoken. Oops. Frank, again, thank oh. you for so much for your time um, and enjoy your day. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Um, Pleasure. Bye now. See you next time. Thanks a lot. See you later.